Bill Roberts. Welcome back to part two of our two-part cart.ca podcast with special guest Madeline Redfern, former mayor of Iqaluit and chief operating officer of Can Arctic Inuit Networks. Madeline is committed to a much more reliable internet service for Nunavut called Sedna Link, an indigenous-owned approach using subsea fiber optic technology. Welcome back, Madeline. Thank you, Bill. All right, picking up on part one. I think one of the last subjects we touched on in part one was about capacity building. And I completely agree. Capacity building is very, very important for all entities. But for an indigenous-owned internet telecom company, I think that's a really laudable uh, objective. But here, here's, a, here's what I'm wondering about. Um, will it be a truly autonomous indigenous entity? You know, good jobs, that's part of capacity building. Will it create good jobs? And given all the competition we talked about last time, you know, do you think Sedna Link will be sustainable over the long run in that context? Uh, absolutely. Well, first of all, the telecommunications cable, unfortunately, doesn't employ a lot of people. One of the things that uh, we have in Nunavut is actually quite a number of different either groups or businesses that produce Inuit cultural content. Here we've got multimedia companies. We're actually in the Inuit Business Corporation. There's jobs here. There's also Isuma and a number of other communities across the territory that actually, as I said, produce content, cultural content. Atunarjwak was a movie that I had mentioned, yep. which you know got uh, world recognition. We have a thriving cultural industry, both with respect to performers and artists and filmmakers, a number of them here, also in Nakalut. But the problem, as I sort of said yesterday, is that given the problem of having poor internet and it's slow and low throughput and it's expensive, is more often than not, we actually have to send that data down south, edited, and then it gets uploaded on servers in the South. And so the rest of the world has easier access to our cultural content than we do, which is bizarre and absurd. Yeah. And also there's uh, Makerspace and a number of, uh, of others that are actually working hard to work on language applications because we need to see Inuktitut not only sort of be protected, but actually advance. And, and be promoted so that we increase the number of speakers. So technology and telecommunications and all the sort of spin-offs can really support making a lot more economic opportunities here. My cousin who runs an unmanned aviation vehicle company, Arctic UAV, and Oakley is also super keen on looking at the opportunities that come with a smart cable, mm -hmm. you know, the science monitoring and reliable telecommunications, because those sensors, they need to be maintained annually. There's a lot of training and job opportunities, as well as the data that comes from those smart cables. Because as I said yesterday, data is the gold. So you have to analyze that data. Data has different purposes for research, academia, good evidence-based decision-making in environmental areas. But it develops an Arctic blue economy. There's jobs, definitely, yeah. in a digital economy, both from the telecommunications aspect of this project, but also from the, the smart cable component. But we also talked about in part one that Already entrenched, deep pocket, uh, heavily invested entities like, for example, Northwest Tel is looking to deregulate so that it can be even more competitive. 
Telesat, which is already a big backbone provider, is looking at Leo satellites. I mean, these are deep pockets already established in the market, and and you're years away from launch. I mean, that's really what I was getting at in terms of sustainable. Can you go toe-to-toe with those outfits? Well, the thing is that we're talking about fiber is the high throughput fast, reliable, and stable uh, telecommunications infrastructure. So nothing really compares to fiber. Mm-hmm. And yes, as, as I said yesterday, you know, Leos are, are coming. We already see Starlink is deploying their satellites and their dishes all across the world. And we see OneWeb has signed an agreement with Northwest Tel. There's the little sort of, you know, hubs on top of the building here in Akaluit. So, but as I said yesterday, you know, the two types of infrastructure are integrated. We need satellite back. We need to have also time in which to be able to expand the fiber network. This is how it's happening all around the world. You know, you start off with the the main location, which is Akhalut, because it's the capital. It consumes 75% of the broadband services, just like Greenland did. It brought into Nuke, and then it's expanded to the outlying communities, and it continues to expand. Same thing as the cable went into Reykjavik, and then it spread across all across the country. Same in Alaska, same in the Nordic countries. I mean, this is how the internet has grown. So there is no one service provider worldwide or even in usually in large continents like North America. There is absolutely a necessity to have fiber in our region. We're the only region in Canada without fiber. Satellites are absolutely necessary, but so is fiber. I I agree with you. I'm just probe a little bit more. So we have Telesat heavily invested. We have Bell, which is a behemoth. Mm -hmm. They are strong private sector players. They're already invested in competing in the north. But they they haven't provided great service. And if they become (laughs) unregulated, they have so much capacity for sustainability from their other markets. They, They sound to me like they could be pretty formidable. As I said, I mean, we've had conversations with both Bell and Telesat, and they recognize, and they actually are fiber companies as well. Yeah. I mean, Telesat... So Bell is a big fiber company. Absolutely. Yeah. And Telesat, you know, wants to effectively download their data packets onto fiber. It's, it couldn't do it without fiber. Reality is, is that Telesat is a middlemeyer provider. They're not an ISP. So they work with uh, with other companies that provide that last mile connection to the customers. But as I said, is that they too recognize that they, if you were technically, you wouldn't be a Telesat customer because those other companies are. But it's it's not like as if the way it works is I'm a Northwest Tel customer and you have to be a Northwest Tel customer for us to communicate. No, there's all this middle mile infrastructure that is largely invisible to the consumer, and the data moves on all this different type of telecommunications infrastructure, and it's sort of seamless. Ideally, it's seamless. Your data moves from where you need it to my email to you or try this morning to use the Government of Canada website. So exactly, most people don't know where and how their data is moving or where and how their data is being stored. Absolutely, fiber is the backbone of the world's telecommunication infrastructure. But satellite, you know, in our northern remote region, plays a big role because right now we're 100% satellite dependent. But it doesn't mean that our fiber is going to displace satellite. 
we're going to need satellite for the communities that aren't connected. We need satellite mm-hmm. for airplanes, satellite for shipping. Mm-hmm. Not everything can be connected by fiber. But nonetheless, the analogy I used yesterday is uh, satellite is sort of like the sprinkler system. The, the fiber is like the fire hose. and But yet together, we get ideally as much coverage and good coverage as possible. One of the ways I was thinking, anyway, just throw it out there, that sustainability could be certainly enhanced. You're, you're a private company. If there was some part of the business plan that directed surplus revenues back into infrastructure as, as a concept of the business, as a foundational concept of the business... Is that part of the plan? And, and will Sedna Link have a, a public board of directors, a governance board that will buy into that concept? So right now we're in conversations with Inuit organizations and Inuit development corporations that are absolutely super interested and they back our project 100%. One of the things is that they want is you know, to ensure that telecommunications infrastructure happens sooner and faster and cheaper. And also they recognize the value of the utility model as bringing the most affordable internet into our region, into our communities and for the customers. It's fairly unique in Canada because most telecommunications companies are And that's private. your utility model. That's our utility model. I mean, you know, the fact is, is the large incumbent telecommunications in Canada are not the utility model. It's not the Bell Canada that we remember from years ago, where when you can make a phone call for 25 cents. And I remember <laughs> when it was a dime. <laughs> well, so actually, so do I. <laughs> I do remember when it was a dime. And so we've moved away from that. If, you know, we end up making more profit than projected to cover our costs, the options are is to reduce the cost of service to your customers or through at least to the ISPs and, and hope they would pass the savings on. But we also recognize that Sedna Link 1 has the opportunity when it makes extra revenue is to help bankroll Sedna Link 2, 3, and 4, which would connect almost all the communities in Minivator. The goal also is with uh, with Sedna Link is to interconnect with the other Inuit companies that are building fiber. So in Nunavik, you have Ophone, you have uh, Quintilium out in Alaska. There's TeleGreenland. Ideally, to make this. Oh, and I, my apologies to the Kivilik uh, Hydro Fiber folks because they have a plan to to bring both the hydro line up from Manitoba, but also to have fiber as well. Mm-hmm. And so. You know, the best and most robust systems is to have all those interconnections happen. So redundancy is a good thing. And unfortunately, right now with the federal government's universal broadband fund, redundancy is not part of their their goal or objective. And that makes networks vulnerable. You know, that's why I was saying yesterday is that when someone accidentally breaks the fiber optic cable in, in northern Alberta. Or you get an see, iceberg. Or, you know, or whatever, it all of a sudden service goes down. You, we can't have that level of vulnerability. As I said yesterday, because you have lives at risk and at stake, you know, whether it's you can't actually call the police to attend an emergency or the fire department or for search and rescue purposes. I mean, we cannot be this vulnerable. That's the part of the problem is that we haven't had either a national or regional telecommunications strategies. We need to know how to build it out. And ideally, one of the things that the 
Minister Vandell likes to say, is that it needs to be done by the North for the North. Well, it also needs to be in Indigenous peoples who are primarily, and especially in Nunavut, were 85% of the population. Most Indigenous peoples and communities and nations haven't yet had the chance to be part of this sector, a $70 billion sector. And we need to be part of those solutions. And so the large incumbents haven't actually done a lot of investment in, in the North. They've invested primarily federal grants or uh, subsidies to sort of provide us service, but it hasn't been very good. Let's switch from the private sector to the not-for-profit sector. I noticed in my research that you're a director of a not-for-profit company called the Arctic Internet Exchange. Other directors are from Ontario, Whitehorse, Iqaluit, and there are some related entities, including the Native Women's Association of Canada, something I'd never heard of before, Function Fog Computing Inc., it's a great name, <laughs> uh, the Pierre Elliott Trudeau Foundation, the Canadian Alliance to End Homelessness, which I have had some experience with, and a couple of numbered companies that, uh, of course, I know nothing about. What does the Arctic Internet Exchange do? So I'm actually no longer on their board of directors, but I was one of the founding members. And I absolutely believe, you know, that uh, the inter Internet Exchange points. So IXPs exist around the world. Effectively, it's to explain to people who may not understand is that we have these large servers and when you need to upload, let's say, a Microsoft app or even an update, what happens more often than not, or another example is Netflix, is that you're no longer just getting that sort of data packet from, let's say, Microsoft in California. You're actually getting that data packet. Let's say you're watching Netflix and you're in Toronto. There's an IXP in Toronto and all that data is nearby. So it's really easy to access. It makes the internet a lot more efficient. So kind of a form of almost edge computing. It makes also a lot of sense to see on a smaller scale to have these internet exchange ports. So Iqaluit, to give you just one example. So we've got the government that's Nunavut here. They've got their, they're the creator of a large amount of data, information about their programs and services. We've got the Nunavut organizations here. Most of the federal government departments are situated in Iqaluit. And so when I'm this morning trying to access a, a federal website, I'm not accessing the content near here. It's on some server far away. So I'm getting a black screen. You know, if you saw my tweet this morning, I literally am not loading that page. If that internet exchange, exchange point was in Iqaluit, I'd be able to access that. And then also, as I said earlier, you know, all that cultural content that we're uploading in the South, we load it here and people would have easy access to their, to their content. Definitely worthwhile. Reykjavik has a, an internet exchange point. Yellowknife should have one. Most part, these it have been on a large scale, but they can be scaled and should be scaled down so that it is the, the effectively the internet traffic, um, not only more efficient because it's, it's you're keeping a lot of that content local and accessible local. Maybe a little bit more exploration around social issues and social implications for a better internet in uh, Nunavut. What about telecommunications and health concerns? I've read, stand to be corrected, that the average annual rate of tuberculosis among Inuit is, I can't believe this number, 290 times higher 
than in Canadian-born non-Indigenous peoples, according to a relatively recent Public Health Agency of Canada report in 2018. That's kind of a first observation. Then second, sort of where I currently live in Ontario, it has a really robust telehealth system. It's completely free. It's confidential. It's 24-7. And again, an unbelievable number that I didn't know about. It has services in 300 languages. Um, d- does anything remotely like this exist in Nunavut? I'm, I'm, I think I can anticipate the answer, but but how is it going to come into existence if it's needed, and why doesn't it? And are those numbers right? 290 times higher tuberculosis rate than the rest of Canada? It, we have horrendous high rates of TB here. I mean, it's historical, and it's just been compounded by the lack of housing. We have a seriously overcrowded housing situation. So in many of our public housing units, especially, you might have two, three, four generations living in a, in a house. So that can mean 16 people in a three-bedroom. A few years back, we had a TB outbreak. The homeless shelter was was one of sort of the the vectors, but it it spreads in a population that you know, where the housing is is insufficient, also inadequate in, in quality. I mean, we've you know, had our former member of parliament traveling around the territory taking pictures with terrible mold. It is uh, it leads to all sorts of other health conditions. So we've got respiratory illnesses of. Of, of children. One research I remember reading is that uh, a four-year-old having the lungs of a 76-year-old person. It's, it's outrageous. There is a bit of an effort to have some set-aside or dedicated bandwidth for sort of telehealth at our health centers when and if they need it. The problem is that you know it's often just inadequate. I remember our former health minister, Keith Peterson, participating in a video conference call with the, his federal health minister, all the other 12 provincial health ministers. And despite being on that sort of set aside, his box on the screen was black. And so his ability to participate equally amongst his own peers of federal and provincial and territorial health ministers was hampered because of the quality of our internet service. While on one hand, it's it's maybe useful to be able to have the nurses, because that's the thing. In most of our communities, we don't have hospitals. The and nurse practitioners. Who are and nurse good. practitioners that are agency nurses, they fly and fly out. And if we had really good telecommunications, then it would be possible for the patient and the nurse to be able to actually show, let's say, a physical condition or an injury. But that's why this territorial government spends 25% of its budget on health services, and a big portion is because of medical travel. And so what does that mean? Well, that means over $250 million a year is spent on health instead of actually, you know, initially at least triage and assess someone from afar. So you do sometimes have people being sent to Iqaluit or Ottawa or Winnipeg or Yellowknife for Edmonton, just even for something as simple as an assessment, because it is not possible to do remote assessments. Now, just for as a recap, there are 25 communities, and all of them fly-in communities. Mm-hmm. What percentage of these 25 or the 24 communities, 
And then you would actually have basic access to the internet. Forget being reliable at the moment, mm -hmm. but what percent roughly? Well, there isn't really, unfortunately, a good enough um, research to, oh, to, okay. to be definitive as to how many do or don't. Now, what is happening, though, is that when you have up to 80% of our people who are living in poverty and, and people who are equally food insecure, what is happening is that people have to make the tough choices as to where they spend the money. And I can tell you that there are some who are like, I cannot be disconnected. I need to have a phone. I want access to, you know, the most basic internet package so that I can be connected to my family and friends and community members. Our families aren't just living in our own community. Our families are in neighboring communities. Um, I have family in Kimrood and Cape Dorset and, and I have friends everywhere. And that's how it actually is. So people are sometimes foregoing meals so that they have some a phone or some basic internet attached to their phone because they feel that they cannot, you know, be without it. They're, people are saying that internet or, and telecommunications is a human right, a basic right. Yep. And like, how do you contact the, the fire department or the police if you don't have access to the phone or internet? So while we have in our communities a community access programs, you know, in our libraries, the problem is during COVID, those libraries were closed. You know, COVID has made things so much harder. We haven't been able to do distance education for, for many of our children. Children have seriously fallen behind on their education. And the households, again, that don't have internet literally were not able to even, you know, um, communicate with the teachers and get the, their packages for, for homeschooling. Let's go back a bit before COVID, sort of pre-COVID, because again, I, I agree 100% with you. Pre-COVID, I guess it was just on the, might have been on the cusp of COVID. That was 2020 South by Southwest. You were on a panel at South by Southwest in 2020. I think it was called Diversity and Inclusion. And that panel was, I think, meant to be a bit optimistic. It was, you know, talking about the unique barriers facing Indigenous communities regarding the internet, the powers of the internet to preserve cultures and language and create your own or our own indigenous cultural content, but I couldn't find anywhere what your gist was in your presentation on the panel back in 2020 about creating a connected future for Inuit people. What was that message and, and has it changed? I mean, I, I got a sense it might have changed because you talked very well about the COVID environment, but your 2020 message, what was it and has it changed in the last two years? Well, I think it it's, was very similar to what I said earlier okay. about the fact that there's been an attitude uh, that Indigenous peoples don't deserve basic services. We're literally dealing with this situation where we're struggling, you know, to have safe and adequate amount of water. We're dealing with health services. We're dealing with lack of housing. We're dealing with a lack of connectivity. There's been too much of an expectation that... One, we just should do without or whatever we're given, you know, no matter how bad it is, we should just put up with it rather than recognizing that indigenous peoples have always also been a, a peoples of technology. The igloo is, is a phenomenal form of, of, of architecture. Uh, we wouldn't have survived 
without technology. I wouldn't survive without my kayak. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I find our, our hunters, our elders, our youth, our people embrace technology. They recognize that technology is a tool. When uh, I did some consultations on telecommunications, you know, many years ago, there you might find like almost in any society a few people that just, you know, they mistrust technology or they didn't like it or they fearful about, you know, let's say uh, cyber crime or just how identity it, theft. Identity theft or just it's a negative influence. But I would say the vast majority of people, they want to be connected, interconnected. They want better access and that it to be fast and affordable. They want it to be comparable to what other people in Canada enjoy in the cities. They they would love, you know, to have unlimited data and bundling. And, you know, we have, uh, surprisingly, Inuit, especially in Nunavut, are some of the highest users of the Facebook on a per capita basis. Huge. It's, sometimes I sort of think I, you know, I want to get off of Facebook for a variety of reasons, but I, I can't afford not to be. It is where my community is, especially during COVID. It's where people are sharing information. It's where we find out about babies being born, people selling stuff, whether it's just their personal items from their home or more often not these gorgeous cultural products from Mounties and Kamiks. It's where hunters find out information about where to go, not go, where it's safe, not safe. Now, it, it is a vibrant online community in, in Nunavut. And that's why I said earlier, people find that uh, even if you're really poor, they don't want to be excluded. Well, I, let's let's uh, dig down in, in that because I think that was uh, one of the fun things I, I found out about some of your words regarding the internet. It was a Financial Post magazine back in 2016. And uh, I think you made the case very elegantly, precisely, that the internet brings access to economic opportunity, as you're saying. But this, you were particular about Inuit women, along with social connections, as you've spoken to in a geographically huge place where isolation is not infrequent. And it was a great story, I felt, about you searching online for a pair of little girl sealskin boots, uh, kamiks or mukluks. And uh, these are homemade in Nunavut for toddlers, toddler booties. They were fetching up, this was 2016, around $400 a pair. But on Facebook, as you just mentioned, they were going for up to $2,000 a pair. So clearly there's a business there. And that was such a fun story. I think you were in your car or something when you were doing this. <laughs> I was. And, uh, but that's an example. What are other examples of the online economic opportunities that are not being realized because of the inadequacy of reliability and latency available to on the internet here in, in Nunavut at the moment? As I was saying earlier, there's a number of multimedia companies that uh, end up shipping the raw footage or product down south and have other people creating the website, creating books. We've got uh, quite a number of very good writers and illustrators here, but it ends up being all sort of in this day and age, it's it's mostly digital, pulling together formats and, and it all gets sent south. So we're losing those jobs here. But at the same time is that we're also very alive to that 
a number of the mines, not only just in Nunavut, but around the world, are moving towards automated mining. That requires good telecommunications infrastructure, requires a good affordable Like the style. De Boer's diamond mine. Yeah, like De Beers diamond mine near here, and they want to do it by automated mining. And we want and need our people to be able to be trained for those jobs. They keep saying that the jobs of the future, I mean, a lot of it is digital economy. If you don't have good connectivity. I remember being at a at a telecommunications summit in Nakhaluit, you know, several years ago and, and some government bureaucrats and officials, you know, bemoaning why are the youth not getting into the telecommunications job? And I'm like, well, it's pretty easy to explain why. If your internet is so crappy, you can't do the fun things that youth do everywhere else in the world, not just sort of enjoying sort of like content and gaming, but actually learning coding and producing your own games. Well, doesn't that speak to public infrastructure? I mean, well, we haven't talked about that really. What about public infrastructure with regard to the internet, like connected schools, connected libraries, teaching things like coding, but also being able to share resources? Is that is that on your radar screen? Well, there is some of that is is happening or could happen to even a greater extent. I mean, I noticed when I went to the library in Akaluit, there was a lineup of teenagers to get on the computers there. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, just an observation. You need to have schools connected. And we're lucky that there, Cisco has a program that has provided some of the hardware to interconnect our schools. Again, one of the problems is that you've got an, a key element that is sort of hampering. So you can install all the hardware that you want. We're in the Inuit Broadcasting Corporation building here. Uh, CBC, Nunavut has offices. APTN has offices. I mean, you know, multimedia companies have offices. But there's only so much work that you can do here if you can't sort of like get your data out, yeah. you know, out of the building, yeah. <laughs> out of the community, between the community, between the region, between the rest of the world. It, it's a real problem. So it is, as I said earlier, it's an essential part of the infrastructure that's absolutely needed because it's linked to services. This, is, this isn't so much a question, Madeline, as just a wondering. The Caluet has had some issues with water. There is technology there, online technology for water monitoring. It, it saves on delivery costs. It assures quality. There's, I mean, that's the kind of thing I would think that would be empowered by reliable fiber. Research, another big one where research heavy country, or at least we should be, uh, and Arctic defense. We, I think three or four times in part one, we referenced what's happening in the Ukraine and certainly what's happening with Russia, not just in the Ukraine, but in, in the Arctic. I mean, those are pretty big public uh, preoccupations, I would think. So maybe I'll just go along the lines of the, the first one. So when I was mayor, water gets delivered in two different ways. Some houses are in what's called the utilidor system, which is a pipe system. About at least 25% of our community has truck service. So the trucks come and then they fill up the tanks almost on a daily basis. But if we had fiber then we can move towards what one of the essential elements I was talking about is you know, creating Arctic cities, Arctic smart cities. Mm -hmm. So right now, the city ha and the homeowner has no sort of real-time sensors attached to those uh, homes to know exactly how much water is in each home. So the way it works is it's fairly low-tech. There's a light bulb attached to the house. 
And when the delivery man sort of connects the hose, and when the light goes on, it's full. Rather, than, but and you have no idea whether you're going to be filling in that house for. It's it's, it's it's binary. It's either is or it isn't. Yes, exactly. Okay. So rather than actually going, okay, well, this home is only use 20 liters or 100 liters of water since yesterday, so it doesn't really need filling. And so there's a lot of efficiencies that can come with fiber, as I said, with with the fibering up. And the other thing, as I mentioned, I think yesterday, is that we know that with permafrost that our pipes are moving up and down, and they're breaking in some places mm. because it's not moving uniformly. But ideally, you know, sort of low-tech solution would be couplers. So it's exactly what it kind of sounds like. It's a flexible connection between sort of the pipe and the access fault, and that way it can just flex without breaking. But if you add the high-tech component, which is the sensors, then you're getting real-time data as to what is happening and learning, you know, what is the breakage point of your flexible copper and ideally getting in to sort of try to prevent a break in real time because you don't want people yep. to be without water. So there's all sorts of absolutely amazing things that I can envision automated vehicles here for, let's say, clearing the roads or the runway during blizzards. Uh, that is not going to happen in the south don't have highways, but there are, you know, safety issues. When a fire is happening during a blizzard, the fire truck can't get to the house. If you had the ability of sort of getting sensors along the road and, and having an unmanned uh, heavy machinery loader, like clear the road, and then the fire truck and the firemen could actually come. You know, it sounds fantastical. It's like very future thinking, but the future is coming. Yes, I'm told. <laughs> <laughs> and it is going to be way more innovative. And it's going to be very much around data, but also how do we use artificial intelligence? Virtual reality. Virtual reality. Augmented reality. Exactly. And it is going to be different in the Arctic than so elsewhere. We're kind of glowing a bit about the future of the internet and the digital tomorrow. Many non-Indigenous studies currently point to intense usage of the internet and online involvement does present a full range of social risks, including misinformation, alienation, which is kind of what we've been talking about from the other side of the coin, withdrawal from society. And we're talking about a different view, a more promising, enfranchising, empowering view. Take issue with that if you want. But um, there are two other issues that I was struck by, and they both involved you, Madeline. One was the justice system, and the other was poverty. We've touched on that a couple of times. But on the, the justice system, there was a Supreme Court matter last month dealing with conditional sentencing. And I think you observed that none of its population has grown by 14% since 2012, but custodial sentences were up by 33%. So that's kind of one place I'm kind of want you to talk about a bit. And the second place is from a 2019 Aurora publication. And as I, we have talked about poverty a little bit, but a real focus now that 30% of Inuit are doing well, okay. And that means 70% are doing not okay. They're struggling in poverty. They're making those decisions about being online or having dinner. Uh, overcrowded housing and food insecurity, as you've mentioned. So here's where I'd like you, and I think our listeners would like you to really give it to us with regard to none of its connectivity and internet needs 
with regards to issues like these and why it's so darn important? I'm the chair of the Nunavut Legal Services Board, which provides legal aid to our 25 communities. And the way that we currently connect with most of our our lawyers, with our clients before court goes into the community, is our our lawyers go in a couple days earlier. If we have better and good um, connectivity, then the ability to actually do video conferencing, you know, would be tremendous being able to see your client yes you can call them up on the phone if they have a phone but there's so much especially in a period of time that someone is under stress it could be that they've been charged with a crime or their family is breaking up or we also provide services where someone's rights have been violated in housing in employment in human rights police brutality inquests related to persons who've died during state care. So most of our lawyers are non-Inuit and most of our clients are Inuit and there is cultural disconnects and it's even made harder when you can't see your client at Mm -hmm. all. Mm And so with the distances and the cost of travel, if we had the ability of actually video conferencing with our clients, and yes, they may not be being able to video conference in their home, but we have court workers and we're decentralized. We have uh, court workers in most of the communities. And so that someone could actually sort of speak to their lawyer with an interpreter, three clinics, one in Nakaluit, one in Rankin, one in Cambridge Bay. I think we would see an improvement in access to justice and because people need to act access their lawyer and their lawyer needs to access them. Just expecting that their lawyer is going to either talk to them on the on the phone, language barriers, you miss so much on body communication, mm-hmm. you know, or just see them right before the court comes, rather than sort of taking the time to prepare your client is definitely stressful. And I've heard from some of our lawyers that they have felt that you know, that has that level of stress and anxiety. That was not good for the person's mental and, and physical well-being. It's not good for them in living in their the household of their family. And in, in a, a few occasions, they have said that, you know, it, that when their client has committed suicide, it's it's because they, they're overwhelmed with this, this situation that is facing them. You know, when we talked about the need for good connectivity in the health sector, we need good connectivity also for justice. We need good connectivity for education. We need good connectivity for training. There's good connectivity, you know, is is just one of those essential elements that can make, you know, doing work in a rural remote in indigenous context that much easier. Not having it, we, we I, I can't just jump in, in in a car or the lawyers who work at Legal Aid, they, they have to go on the plane. It's just so different. And I'm glad that you've come here, Bill, because again, if we were to try to do this by phone or video conferencing, if it could work, which sometimes it does. But you get such a better sense of the place. And you come to Iqaluit, which is the capital. And, it, and I always you know, had to say, even as the mayor of, of Iqaluit, that Iqaluit is not representative of our other communities. Mm-hmm. You know, there's so much larger. There's so much more amenities. In the smaller communities, it's it's less. And, and it can be that much more challenging. I think there really is very strong, solid case to see investments towards not only Indigenous reconciliation, but Indigenous economic reconciliation. Mm -hmm. Because if we don't have these really necessary investments, we're going to miss out on those economic opportunities. But we're also 
not helping deliver the services that our people need counseling services with your with your, dealing with whatever it is it could be anger management or well we have such high rates of suicide mm-hmm. here mm-hmm. we have high rates of, of walking addiction. around town i've seen signs on doors the government knew it struggles it pre-COVID, 50% of our mental health positions were unfilled. Mm-hmm. And even the, when we do have mental health counselors that come up here, I mean, they get overwhelmed with vicarious liability. Burnout. Burnout. And, yeah. and, and so they need the support. They need, you know, if their clients need the support. So so what will it cost? What will it cost yeah. to get Sedna Link here? I mean, I've seen yep. $107 million as a number, and I think there was another couple of other numbers thrown out. And what will it cost to get Sedna Link here? Uh, who should pay for it? And when will it happen? So Sedna Link actually phase one, which now has changed from Clarenville to Happy Valley Goose Bay, and in part because of an opportunity for us to partner with a Norwegian company called Bulk Infrastructure. So by shaving off some distance and also the value of redundancy with their network and the value of being able to connect with the, with the fiber optic all the way down to Montreal. Our project cost is somewhere in the range of $97 million. So okay. half of the cost of the government project, and we can save that $209 million for them, they could spend on other infrastructure. Or even they could use that to sort of help expand Sedna Link up to the high Arctic. Um, it's approximately about $230 million to connect uh, all those communities uh, along the east coast of Baffin, all the way up to Arctic Bay. So overall, the various phases of Sedna Link is, is in the range of about $750 million, but it's expected to be done in phases. So it's a staged approach. Um, it's a staged approach. The other thing, which is which has uh, happened since the Russian invasion of Ukraine, there's recognition by uh, United States and Canada who have a system called NORAD. So it's effectively pretty out of date. Yeah, it's very out of date, <laughs> but it's effectively the north northern early warning system for for North America. Yeah, it succeeded the due line. Yes, succeeded the due line. There's recognition that it needs to be modernized. It's fairly well served on satellite, but uh, the military wants all domain awareness. And where there is a significant lack of even baseline data, let alone real-time data, is in the marine environment. That's why with Sedna Link 2 and Sedna Link 4, would actually allow those sensors to provide baseline and real-time data along the Baffin Bay, the High Arctic, and through the Northwest Passage. The military absolutely want as much data and intelligence as they can get. You know, as a number of uh, military folks have said, is that you need this data. You can't just wait for sort of a, a foreign incursion to happen. Like, you need to be able to predict. And the only way in which to be able to accurately or to, to predict is, is having as much access to data, data, data. And the military also you know, recognize that this infrastructure, whether, whether it's telecommunications or something like a smart cable, what is good for civilian use is, more, is also usually good for is the military. So it needs to be multi-purpose infrastructure, multi-user 
multi-benefits. When that plane crashed in Resolute Bay, Mm -hmm. the military had no better access to better telecommunications. That's why they had to desperately ask CBC to sort of say to Nunugumu, please stop like using the phone. (laughs) No, it's a major crash. And I said earlier, people are so interrelated and interconnected. Of course, the first thing they want to do is make sure that everyone's okay. And what's happening? And it's like, please stop. So no, the defense sector for our national security, our national sovereignty, needs and wants to see smart strategic investments being made for NORAD modernization that is also good for the communities. I'm I'm still stuck on the dollars. Ottawa has a 2.7 billion universal broadband fund. I think that's out of the Ministry of Innovation, Science and Economic Development. The feds also have a 35 billion Canada infrastructure bank. Pretty sure you've applied to both. I hope you've applied to Mm -hmm. both. What have you heard from them? And what are your timelines now for actual deployment and and being in service for Sedna Link 1? Is it 2023, 2024? Well, it depends on on getting the financing secured. So yes, we have applied to the Canadian Infrastructure Bank. They do have also an Indigenous fund Mm. set aside. It can be up to $50 million. It's low interest rated over a long period of time. Is the money all up front and then the paybacks over a long period of time? Okay. Yeah, exactly. So it's a low interest loan for Indigenous projects or projects that will benefit an Indigenous region. So we definitely, even with just the $50 million, we would be good to go because we could get uh, private financing. The Universal Broadband Fund, we've applied for it. I said it received 1,800 applications from across the country. So not surprisingly, they're having a hard time sort of without a strategy in place to sort of figure out which best projects to fund. They've also hired a company to update their effectively their broadband online tool, which was supposed to help sort of assess what is the current state of the internet, uh, in which areas. That tool wasn't always accurate. That is that is seeming to cause some delays at their end. We're in conversations, as I said, with Inuit organizations and Inuit development corporations that got their own federal funding. The federal government provided the four Inuit regions uh, money for infrastructure projects. Mm-hmm. We're looking at um, you know what level of of interest that for a potential investment um, in this project, doing everything to sort of make it possible for Sedna to happen and to happen sooner rather than later. As I said, with the Russian invasion, there's uh, definitely an interest uh, to see telecommunications improved, you know, for NORAD and for the smart cable component. So we're having those conversations and we, you know, we've had folks say, well, you know, are you shovel ready? And it's like, absolutely, we're shovel ready. We've spent money recently on the desktop study that would allow us to do the marine technical survey this summer. We're in conversations with the Inuit Development Corporation for uh, one of their vessels to do some of that marine survey work and, and in conversations with, with the larger ones because the, the bigger vessels are needed for the deeper water. So everyone wants this to happen faster you're not giving me a date. <laughs> no, I said, you know, it, it all depends on the funding and the financing. So, so you're if, look, are you looking so at 2024? 2023, if the, the if we can get the money all firmed up. Yeah. Um, and it, because, as I said, there's a there are folks 
that are absolutely keen on, on seeing this accelerated. We had sort of moved towards 2024. The folks that want us to do it faster and sooner, we're putting some pressure on them saying, well, you need to help us get that funding and okay, financing understood. in place. So Russia's interesting. My, my Métis godmother used to tell me, she said, Bill, there's nothing so bad that there's not a little good in it. And uh, you know, maybe she was right on, on that in terms of the terrible things happening in, in the Ukraine. Anyway, moving on. Maybe this is not quite moving on. It's, it's in the world of sort of international tensions. I think the government of Nunavut's original technology partners included Huawei, the Chinese company. Is that accurate? Well, the government of Nunavut's fiber project to Greenland, there is some Huawei hardware on the Telegreenland networks. Okay. I do not know how much uh, the government of Nunavut it was expecting to potentially use or not use Huawei hardware, but there's growing recognition to not only with Russia, but also with China, especially around tech companies and telecommunications companies, that there are national and privacy concerns around hardware is software and software is hardware. And the ability to harvest people's data as they use their cell phones or their computers and the data moves through the telecommunications sort of uh, networks. So there's been a number of the five eyes, mm-hmm. nations that have, you know, said no, no, including the United States, that no, Chinese telecommunications companies are banned from being able to sort of build out the networks, especially the 5G networks, because national security interests, even pre a Russian invasion to Ukraine, but especially since the Russian invasion, is that people are recognizing how important it is that national security also includes energy security, mm-hmm. includes telecommunication security, communications and digital security. So there's a greater awareness that while we are all interconnected, how do we protect our, the data of our citizens? How do we protect the data and infrastructure in our regions and also nationally? I understand that, and that makes a world of sense to me. When you look at your international partners for Sedna Link, I know you've mentioned Norway. Is that your only international partner, or do you have American companies like Intel involved? Well, we have uh, some American companies also involved as uh, consultants, as uh, service providers. We've used Pioneer Consulting because of their you know, expertise and, and being able to help on routing and costing and, and such like. We have been approached by private investors that have participated in my partner's former projects. Um, that's Mr. Cunningham. That's Mr. Cunningham. Looking at wanting to give preference to Inuit organizations and Inuit development corporations as the sort of the first investors. I think it's really important that infrastructure is owned, you know, regionally and locally. I think that it generally ensures that, you know, things like the utility model are, are at the forefront. It's not just about sort of you know, making big money. It's about really let's build out the infrastructure and let's ensure most people can get access to affordable internet. And that if there's the opportunity of potentially doing our own sort of affordable internet program, which says, you know, elders get $20 yeah. a month packages. You yeah. Know? I was listening to a conversation along those lines in the legislature a couple of days ago about mm-hmm. elders and 
bringing them back to Nunavut and providing that infrastructure facility around them. Now, the federal government has an affordable internet program, which isn't available here. I mean, maybe this is provocative, I don't know. But the United States of America has fallen something like 20 or 25 ranks in the ranking of uh, successful and sustainable liberal democracies around the world. There may be Canadians who are a little skeptical about uh, embracing Companies like an Intel, for example, uh, in the United States, for much of the same reason that they might be slightly allergic to Huawei as well, that that sustainability of that liberal democracy, especially after 2024, could be suspect. So uh, that's that, that's behind my question. I think that one of the things is that if the owners of infrastructure have those direct relationships with the regions and the people that they serve, and that those people have direct access to those people who control or own and manage that infrastructure, that service. I mean, it's you're not some company far away, mm-hmm. you know, or way across the other side of Canada's north. No, I just want you to have here. non-aligned partners. <laughs> well, no, it's, and it's, Norway's great. Norway is good. It's a, it's a safe partner. And, and a smart one. And a smart one. I mean, the fact is that we did actually a road tour. We went to uh, Labrador Nanatsiavuk. Peter Narabu, the owner, he physically wanted to sort of like get on the ground and take a look at the potential route options. He wanted to meet with the different governments, you, the energy um, companies and utility companies. He wanted to meet with the indigenous peoples. He has the big clients and, and investors that are absolutely keen on a, a route that makes sense. And yes, he could build his second intercontinental fiber optic cable from Norway to Boston. His first one goes to New Jersey. But he wants a project that also is is, is socially good. Yep. You know, that it makes money, but it does social good. Mm-hmm. And bringing With it a into... a social enterprise. Yeah, social enterprise. Well, it's still a private entity. Yeah. You know, it's not. Bringing it into Labrador is is a smart move. So when we became aware of you know that project, it made us reevaluate our route and reached out, and it made a lot of sense. That's why we have an MOU between the two companies is to share that wealth of expertise and experience and synergies and potential cost savings because we're aligned in the sense of that it needs to make business sense, but we also want to ensure that there is a lot of social good that can come from the our respective projects. And if we can align our timing and use of suppliers and our routing, it's a win-win-win scenario. Um, I was thinking more about one of the stages of Sedna Link, including Nunavik. Mm-hmm. Is that... Is that- Yes. So, I mean, the distance between where their cable will go to, which is Kangalusulutra, and where our cables that are going up to the Forbusher Bay to Akhalawit, the distance isn't that far. Again, it would make a lot of sense to have the two cables interconnect because then instantly for them, it provides another one redundancy, um, and they would take advantage of our redundancy was said in the link, but the redundancy also the Leif Erikson's cable, which is the bulk infrastructure, and the redundancy that that bulk infrastructure network going into Montreal. So it, it, it kind of closes the loop. It makes a lot of sense strategically. Is Erikson a Swedish company? 
Leif Erikson, uh, that's the name of the bulk infrastructure second proposed okay. uh, fiber optic project. Okay. We're getting close to the end of our part two and so close to the end of our special podcast series, Madeline. Do you ever have the feeling that you're living in a world of, with uh, Sedna Link, of, you know, if we build it, they will come? Without a doubt. <laughs> no, I mean, people. It's baseball season, so I have to use that <laughs> metaphor. <laughs> no, everyone wants fiber optic coming into, into our region. As I said earlier, they want it sooner rather than later. The big and smaller ISP companies are desperate for it. Our businesses here, they want it. The residents want it. Everyone wants improved connectivity. It's it's fascinating to sort of explain this to, to people who don't live in Nunavut, how, what our current reality is and what our future can and should be with this type of infrastructure. We have... Maybe two more themes I want to explore a little bit. One is the name Sedna. On my mantelpiece at home, there is a an Inuit sculpture of what my grandson first... What's that mermaid with the teeth doing there? <laughs> Grumpy. Uh, and, and my understanding of Sedna uh, in Inuit mythology is is as a goddess of the sea, a kind of mother of the sea, part of the Inuit creation stories. And you've named your vehicle for this achievement, Setna Link. Uh, it certainly sounds exciting and necessary in a kind of a modern creation story. But again, my understanding of the Setna creation myth is it has many, many, many variations. And so I'm, I just want to know, what, what was your version in choosing Setna as the name for this enterprise? Well, Setna, as you said, is the, is the goddess of the sea. And, and she's responsible for bringing the bounty from the marine environment. The fiber optic cable is a, is a subsea cable. It's, it's going through her environment and effectively allowing the bounty that would, uh, that would come from a fiber optic project, from a smart cable. It is uh, unlocking this opportunity and this bounty. It's uh, definitely wanted to pay homage you know, to, to Sedna that she would look favorably on our project. I have a feeling she will. Okay, I, I must ask this question. My last question, Madeline. What have I forgotten to ask you? <laughs> what have I forgotten to explore in this conversation, these two conversations? And what message should we make certain that our cart.ca listeners take away from our chat? It's important that people realize, as I said, this is an Inuit-led project, that it is based in Nunavut, that this is a form of Indigenous reconciliation. You know, the, the work that Doug and I are doing, learning to take each other's strengths and our experiences and expertise to, to facilitate uh, development of this project, but also the value and the need for government to let the private sector do what it does best. When you've got that level of skin in the game, you are going to be very careful very strategic, you know, about the projects that you that you do do because you want it to be successful. And also I think what I just read recently, a fascinating piece of research which actually said that indigenous women who get into business have a slightly different angle because they're really looking, how can my business help my community? way beyond just sort of personal interest. And, and so that is what drives and motivates me, is that I want to see a project that can save my government money, that that money can be used for something else, 
because our needs are tremendous and that we can be strategic and smart in building capacity and helping not just my community, Vakalud, but, you know, the entire sort of region of Nunavut and in, make it inter Inuinanga beneficial. It's a lot of work and effort has gone into sort of how can this all be done, rolled out in the smartest and best way, best use of public resources with the greatest, not only sort of, you know, return on that public investment, but the best return on our regional and national investment. Well, Madeline Redford, Chief Operating Officer of Canarctic Inuit Networks, Thank you so much for an enlightening cart.ca journey and northern education over these past couple of days. It's been fascinating, a fascinating two-part cart.ca special podcast. Clearly, anything that can bring better connectivity and mobile services to Nunavut and the North is a very, very good idea. One that, as I think you said, in many different ways, long overdue. And we wish you, we wish you every good fortune and success. I'm Bill Roberts, and this is a cart.ca podcast coming from Acaluit at the Inuit Broadcasting Corporation Studios. Until next time, cheers.